Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. One of the sad chapters of my life was watching a friend succumb to a rare cancer. It was a type of cancer that nobody really worked on, few people researched, and it affected a vanishingly small number of very unfortunate individuals. Sadly, she had to look for any kind of trials or generic therapies that they may allow her into because nobody knew much about her disease. The number of orphan diseases affects a large number of people, yet there's been less research and fewer dollars invested in their therapies. However, we're at an interesting time where technology has reached a place where it can be applied to some of these rare problems. This is where Rocket Pharmaceuticals comes in, and Rocket Pharma is working on using gene therapy to approach correction of rare genetic diseases. Today we're speaking with Dr. Gaurav Shah. He's the CEO of Rocket Pharmaceuticals, or Rocket Pharma. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shah. Thanks for having me today, Kevin. Yeah, this is really cool because I love to focus on innovative ways of correcting novel problems. And your company is really focusing on rare genetic diseases and using gene therapy as, as a way to resolve them. But at the same time, there's some unique problems with dealing with orphan disease. So what is an advantage of operating an orphan disease space? It's a great question. So there, I would say there's a few answers. First of all, truly devastating, rare monogenic diseases don't really spread widely in the population because these are patients who sometimes pass away early in life or aren't able to live normal lives. So the mutations themselves tend to be somewhat restricted in terms of the number of patients they affect. So to deal and try to cure potentially rare genetic diseases, it's going to be in the orphan disease space. So Another point to make on why the orphan space also is that big pharma companies often don't want to go into that space for whatever reason, sometimes to do with profitability, sometimes to do with the expertise needed to develop rare disease drugs. So it's a place where small companies like Rocket can truly be first, best, and only in class. I would say that the development of complex therapies such as gene therapies is difficult. And we have to keep the patient and drug development in mind. And it's not good to be trying to compete with somebody or another company. So it's just great to be first only in best in class as all of the programs with Rocket are. No, that it really makes a lot of sense. And, and it's really important to somebody if you're the person who's affected with that disease and unable to find a cure out of the major pu pipelines. So what are some of the current disorders that are being targeted and maybe how common are they? Yeah, so we are looking at two therapeutic areas. One is the bone marrow. The best way to approach the bone marrow with gene therapy is an ex vivo lentiviral-based approach. What this is, is 
there is a lentiviral vector, a lentivirus, which is a modification actually of the HIV virus, which has been inactivated, but at the same time is highly prolific in its ability to deliver DNA material to millions of cells or billions of cells. And this lentiviral therapy is transduced, means introduced into cells outside the body. Hence, it's called ex vivo. So ex vivo lentiviral-based therapy, we take patients' blood and bone marrow into a lab. We introduce the gene using a lentiviral vector, and then we reinfuse that blood into the patient's body, and it ultimately finds its way to the bone marrow and corrects the disorder. So that's ex vivo lenti. We have three ex vivo lenti programs that address bone marrow diseases, and those are Fanconi anemia, LAD1, leukocyte adhesion deficiency one, and pyruvate kinase deficiency. We also have an in vivo AAV program. This is where we use another virus called AAV to introduce corrected genetic material directly into the organ. And in this case, it's the heart. So instead of taking it outside and culturing these cells outside, we directly infuse the AAV into the bloodstream, IV. It goes to the heart and it adds this gene to cardiomyocytes. Dannon disease is a heart disease, so we have th two therapeutic areas, bone marrow and heart, and we've also now added two more heart diseases that can be potentially treated with AAV in vivo therapies as well. This is really cool. So let's start with this lentiviral thing and drill into this a touch more, is when you're doing the lentiviral approach, this is done in vivo, as you say, you do the genetic change in vivo, then do you have to ablate the patient's bone marrow and then you just give this transfusion back in and then bone marrow cells figure out how to get back in the bones, which is really cool. Is that how this works? That's exactly how it works. That's as elegant as an explanation as I've heard, Kevin. Oh. That's exactly how it works. And the advantage here is that you're not really bathing the, the bone marrow directly with these lentiviral viruses, right? These lentiviral vectors. That's one thing. And also we're able to control the conditions of transduction means introduction of genes into these cells outside the body. So we can really tweak that and develop it over time. So there's a lot of advantages to that style. And are those lentiviral approaches kind of one and done that once you deliver the DNA in vitro and then those cells no longer can spread the virus, like is, is it kind of inactivated or unlikely to spread after that? Yeah, it is one and done. The idea is that a single infusion is potentially curative for the rest of the patient's life. And we have evidence that lentiviral-based therapies can last at least 10 years, in some cases, a few years, more than 10 years, based on some of the early work using lentiviral therapies, not in these programs, but in other programs. So there's good reason to believe that this is a durable, potentially one and done treatment. Gosh, I love this stuff. So the, the lentiviral stuff, that makes sense to me. Now, when you talk about the Vivo approaches with AAV, which has been used for a long time now in many different places, but how does the AAV know to deliver the target to the heart? There are many types of AAVs, and many of them are naturally occurring. The one we use is AAV9. Nine represents the capsid. The capsid is the way that these AAV vectors find the cells and bind to cells and insert themselves into the cells. AAV9 loves the heart. That's been 
proven in cell-based experiments. It's been proven in animal models, and now it's been proven in humans. AV9 loves the heart. It also likes skeletal muscle and CNS. For example, AAV9 was the vector, the capsid, that was used for Zolgensma, which was currently marketed by Novartis, a therapy that addresses spinal muscular atrophy type 1. And it's, it, it's an effective therapy. AV9 loves CNS as well as the heart, but it loves the heart more than any of the other, other organs in terms of what we call tropism. Tropism is its ability to hone in on a particular cell. So the tropism of AV9 for heart is very high. That's how we, that's how we select for specificity. Well, I think that a lot of people who would learn about this may be concerned about off-target then. So, you know, you have something that you want in the heart that maybe is showing is going to other places by nature of that, of that virus. So do you use regulatory elements in the gene, in the, in the gene that's being added therapeutically to ensure specificity of the therapeutic treatment? So the capsid determines tropism, right? It's the number of cells that the vector is going to transduce and insert DNA into. Promoters and other regulatory elements, they determine protein expression, which is the next step after DNA insertion, right? So you can, you can insert a lot of DNA with the right capsid and tweak the protein expression using promoters that might be cell specific or tissue specific, you know, organ specific. So the whole spectrum of how to influence a particular target, a particular disease target using an AAV vector has such a wide range of inputs across the, the full spectrum, across the full rainbow here, ranging from the type of caps that you select, like you said, the promoter, uh, enhancers, other regulatory elements, other initiation sites that can tweak up or down particular protein expression. And all of that is, it's an art as well as a science. And it's also sometimes serendipitous to discover the right Goldilocks type gene therapy that works. And I think for Danon disease, that's exactly what happened. We had a therapy and if we tweaked up some of the things, it became too toxic. If we tweaked some of them down, it didn't get into enough cells. So the one that we developed and moved forward with was exactly the right one. I think it's a beautiful question because people just probably don't realize that gene therapies can go wrong really quickly if you have the wrong tweak on there, but they can also be curative in the right way, you know, with the right variations and marrying the art, the science here. Well, it's just like anything, right? The dose makes the poison. And what I think has been so exciting about the genomics era is that we've been able to discover so many little, not just on-off switches, but volume knobs that can help us right. target the, the, the right expression in the right tissue at the right time, right place, right developmental state. So many things that we can do that we couldn't do 10 years ago. So super cool that you're doing this. And, but you know, I think about this from the science side, that's great. But from the business side, yeah. you know, you're talking about rare diseases with, a, like you say, a handful of patients that maybe get one treatment. <laughs> and if it works, then you don't, you lose your, use your, lose your customer. So how does a publicly traded company expect to be highly profitable from treating obscure disease? Yeah. So first of all, I would say that each rare disease is somewhat rare, but rare disease is not rare, right? Because there's a lot of rare diseases and you add them all up, but they become more common 
sometimes in what we call common diseases, right? So I think the ability to address several diseases that might be considered rare, each one, put them together using a platform approach, like, like I said earlier, ex vivo lenti or in vivo AAV, to quickly be able to address the science behind these diseases, get them into the clinic and then get them commercialized can certainly lead to a pretty profitable business case. And the precedent here, there, there are precedents that, that might be well known of companies that started as rare disease companies that continue to be rare disease companies, but they've really been successful in addressing a large number of rare disease patients. There's Vertex, there's Alnylam, there's Alexion, and these, these have very strong business cases and, and now positive revenues. That's a really good point. And it's also the idea that once you develop the toolbox and a great set of tools, you may find more screws to turn that are a little bit more mainstream. So it's, it's exciting, not just from an innovation standpoint, but for future collaboration. That's pretty good stuff. Just to add to, to that last point you made, we're addressing monogenic diseases. These are diseases in which one gene has gone awry via mutation. Once we crack this monogenic code, which has already been cracked, but once we're able to, to address a lot of these, you could call them low hanging fruit in some ways, because it's a simple fix in, in many ways, a gene replacement for the gene that's wrong. We can then address bigenic, trigenic, multigenic diseases, and ultimately the multigenic diseases, even many diseases like Alzheimer's are considered to be multigenic. So over time, I think gene therapy has the potential to have an impact on a large swath of human diseases. Right now, we just opened up the door a crack and we're letting light in. That's awesome. So we're talking with Dr. Gaurav Shah. He's the CEO of Rocket Pharma and they're cracking open doors and new technologies that are allowing realistic application of gene therapy. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. And we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. So now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we're speaking with Dr. Gaurav Shah, and he's the CEO of Rocket Pharma, and we're talking about gene therapy solutions to monogenic problems. So where there's an underlying genetic condition that's causing a problem, these are therapies that are designed to fix it. And we're speaking about some specific examples in their pipeline on the diseases that they chose to pursue. And it's it's really interesting because these really sit in two different places. We talked about bone marrow and cardiac. But can you give us an idea of the pipeline overall and how does this work? Do you start with animal models first and then kind of move towards a human focus? So even before animal models, we have cell models. So we can actually, for example, in heart diseases, look at cardiomyocytes. And there are ways to derive cardiomyocytes that serve as a proxy of human cardiomyocytes. And we can even test these vectors first in the lab without animals. And we then move into animal studies. We typically start with 
either small animals, either a mouse or, or rat models. We may at some point move into larger models such as pig or in some cases, non-human primates. And this whole package comes to these programs are highly de-risked by the time we get into humans, or at least de-risked as much as possible by the time we start a clinical trial in, in humans. So that's, that's the whole process. It takes a while. One of the things that we pride ourselves at Rocket about is the fact that we've been able to take programs from discovery to clinic in about 30 months, so about two and a half years. So over time, as we develop more programs, our capacity to bring multiple rare disease gene therapies to market is, is, is quite substantial. Well, that's, it's really impressive and it's exciting to think about that this pipeline is relatively short for these diseases that are rare. Let's start with a couple of them. That's the fun part for me about this is it's great to learn about new technology, but it's also interesting to learn about new diseases. And let's start with Fanconi anemia. I've never heard of this before. So what is it? And what is the current line of treatment that before your therapies would step in? Yeah, Fanconi anemia is a bone marrow-derived disease and the disease is caused by defects in DNA repair. So usually when most of us are exposed to the environment, there's radiation around, there's random mutations that happen in our body. There are other environmental toxins that lead to DNA damage. And we have an intact DNA repair mechanism. Fanconi anemia patients have a defective DNA repair mechanism. So when they have injury to cells, they can't self-repair. The organ that's affected first and most in a devastating way in these patients is the bone marrow because the stem cells in the bone marrow are especially prone to DNA damage. And then if they can't repair themselves, the stem cells eventually die out in the bone marrow and the bone marrow fails. Over the course of the first 10 years, Fanconi anemia patients, 80% of these patients go into bone marrow failure and later in life also develop leukemia. The current therapy, the current way to get around this is an allogeneic bone marrow transplant from somebody else's bone marrow into the patient's marrow. But as you can imagine, this can be toxic, can be deadly, and it leaves the patient, even if successful, for many years of frail health status. The gene therapy approach actually is different for Fanconi anemia versus almost any other gene therapy program in that we're not requiring conditioning. We're not requiring chemotherapy to kill out the bad native stem cells before introducing the gene corrected cells. Why? For the same reasons that the disease exists. Those stem cells fizzle out on their own. So we don't need to use chemotherapy to eradicate them and make room for the new gene therapy cells. So just by infusing gene therapy cells with no chemotherapy, we're able to, over time, to repopulate the bone marrow with normal corrected stem cells that have an intact DNA repair mechanism. So that's sort of one of those situations where Fanconi anemia gene therapy was not just pushing the pipeline for rocket forward, it actually pushed the gene therapy field forward in a very, in a very big way in terms of the science. It's super exciting because I, I've watched gene therapy for a long time. I did speeches on this in 1983 wow. or something. I mean, I, wow. I used to talk about it back then. And 
all the companies that had these glowing ideas that we thought, okay, this will all be figured out by 1990. And it took a lot longer to get to where we're getting. But I think that it's so realistic now because of focuses like this particular approach. And what about leukocyte adhesion deficiency? This is another one on your website, but I've never heard of this one either. What is it and what is the current treatment? LAD1 is perhaps one of the most devastating diseases on earth. It is a disorder of a type of blood cell called a neutrophil. We all need neutrophils to fight infections as sort of the first line of response. And the issue with patients with LAD, leukocyte adhesion deficiency, in this case, subtype one, is that the patient's neutrophils lack a certain protein on the surface called CD18, or they have very low levels of it. And without that protein, the neutrophils can't get out of the bloodstream and get into areas of infection. So these are children who have recurrent and often fatal illnesses early in childhood. In fact, two-thirds of patients in the world with LAD1, severe LAD1, pass away by the age of two. And even those first few years of life are marked by frequent hospitalizations and infections that are devastating for patients and families in the community. So really a devastating disorder. We're using a viral ex vivo approach here uh, to address LAD1 patients. Nine patients have been treated. We revealed the results last year. All nine patients are LED1-related, infection-free, they're coming off their antibiotics, their, their blood levels of other biomarkers that might suggest LED1 have all normalized. And while these patients expected only to live two, three, four, five years, it's possible now that they live normal lives, 80 to 83, 84, 85 years or more. So, you know, obviously I don't want to point toward results that haven't happened yet. That's that particular statement was actually made by the principal investigator, but these diseases do have the potential to find curative solutions through gene therapy. When gene therapy works, it really works. And I think that's what people don't appreciate. This isn't a molecular bandage here. This is a molecular solution. This is replacing what the problem is, isn't just treating the symptom. This is solving the causal defect. And I, I think that's just such an important part of the approach. Yeah. And, and to your point, in the history of our species, there's been very, very, only a few instances where we can actually address the root cause. One example is many types of infectious diseases where we can eradicate the bacteria. And I think after infectious diseases, the next big, big breakthrough in terms of curative potential is gene therapy. You have defective DNA and you replace it with correct DNA, which is as fundamental a cure as, as we could get for anything. And let's, uh, maybe we can, should approach this question now while we're at this point is what are the limits? Because you're using bone marrow where you can do this in vivo, or you're using targeted AV, which can find a specific delivery place with all the right regulatory elements, but how many mono, what, is there a way to even guess what, how many of these defects are monogenic? and can be approached with these kinds of therapies versus others, which, you know, if it's in all your muscle cells, you'll never get to it, that kind of thing. Yeah, so there are more than 7,000 known rare diseases. Many of them are monogenic. And amongst the monogenic diseases, you know, the, the, the exercise, the question you're asking is the exercise that we performed when starting Rocket Pharma. 
several years ago, we can whittle that number of 7,000 down to a few hundred where there's a clear monogenic cause associated with a protein in a cell that causes the disease. I would say that number is several hundred. And I think out of those several hundred, not all of them are common enough to sort of warrant the large number of investment or the large amount of investment that's needed to develop these therapies. So we whittled those few hundred numbers down into several dozen. And I do think that there are several dozen diseases that are relatively common, even as rare diseases are still relatively common, where again, all these other philosophical tenets of asset selection come into play and where we can really make a, a big impact in a large number of patients' lives and also have a business case to move forward. We've started, as I mentioned, with six of these, four in the clinic, two others. We have about the same number in what we call wave two, a pipeline right behind. Right behind. And over time, we do anticipate being able to, to address a few dozen diseases. And at that point, it's no longer rare diseases. Like I said earlier, you add all the rare diseases together and it's no longer rare. So we put, could be getting into several hundred thousand patients that we could affect over time as we expand our pipeline. I'm expecting a daughter in May. And one of the things that we went through was because both my wife and I are advanced age parents. And one of the things they did was a significant panel for monogenic diseases in yeah. her to ensure that we didn't have a, a child coming with some special issues to address towards delivery. And is there a possibility that these types of screenings could happen early on and that corrections could be made even in an early embryonic stage to create, to solve the problem before you ever, before the baby's even born or before human even is, you know, boots on the ground? I think early in life is certainly a possibility. In fact, the youngest patients treated in some of these programs, both Lent DNA AV are less than one years old. And in one case in our trial, three months old. So certainly identifying the disease early in life is only going to be beneficial for everybody because not only can you treat the disease, but you can prevent many of the manifestations of disease if you catch it early in life. So uh, in terms of embryonic gene transfer, I think that's probably a ways away. Uh, I would say that the field would have to advance a little bit further where we can get more and more comfortable with the overall benefit risk profile before we go there. But uh, yeah, why not someday? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a guy in China who could tell us all about the fallout when you jump the gun on that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Not <laughs> what, let's go back to your pipeline. And it's really, because this is really the good stuff. What's Danon disease? It was totally new to me. And how does gene therapy help to reverse it? Yeah, Danon disease is actually one of the most life-threatening and devastating cardiomyopathies on the planet. In fact, the largest heart on record in, in human history, in terms of weight, is a Danon disease patient's heart. And this is a disease that's X-linked. It affects boys earlier than girls, but eventually affects both. It's a disease where there's something called autophagy that keeps all of our cells clean. It's like the vacuum cleaner or the recycling center of our cells. Of our cells. Without autophagy, you get garbage building up and deranging these cells function. It happens mostly in the heart, but it can also happen in the skeletal muscle and the brain. Danon disease patients have basically a mechanism, sorry, a faulty mechanism whereby their heart malfunctions over time. Again, affects boys earlier than girls. And it affects 
15 to 30,000 patients in the US and Europe. That's our, our best estimate. Boys, unfortunately, pass away in their late teenage, early 20s, unless they get a heart transplant, which is only available in rare cases. Even when patients get a transplant, though, the 10-year, what we call survival, meaning the chance that patients can survive for 10 years is only about 50%. So even with the cardiac transplant, the, the, the odds are not great. Our gene therapy for Danone disease is in an IV, AAV9 approach, like we discussed earlier, where we directly inject, inject the corrected gene into the heart using an AAV vector. And once it gets into the heart, it turns on autophagy because the defect in Danon is caused by lack of a protein that we then reinstitute into cells and turn that vacuum cleaner back on. And once that vacuum cleaner is back on, we've seen in the patients that we've treated based on biopsy that the vacuoles actually start going away. We can look at those and we can even quantify them. And there's a massive drop in vacuoles over time. And that massive drop in vacuoles is associated with, we can see the protein being expressed. It's associated with labs like BNP that start improving. These are measures of heart failure. It's been also associated with improvements on cardiac imaging. You can actually see the heart shrinking in size on, on echocardiography. And it's also introduced, it's also manifested by patients actually feeling better. And in some cases, Patients who thought they were going to be on a transplant list or passed away by now who are in the early 20s who got our gene therapy are now going back to work and going to college and starting to live normal lives. So this was for us a really big breakthrough in the field because while gene therapy has been effective to date in bone marrow diseases, in the liver, and in the CNS, this is the first time we've shown the impact of gene therapy on the heart and knowing that the heart is the biggest killer of, of people in the U.S., it could really open the door to something very large. So all of these are really exciting and they seem to be very linear and straightforward approaches to really important problems if you're in that subset who are affected. So what is the regulatory climate like on these? How much evidence do you have to produce? And in especially with a few number of people, are the clinical trials really challenging to do? performer. What, what's the bar like for you? Regulatory landscape for gene therapy has actually evolved and has become highly supportive. So I would say early on in the field, there was a lot of positivity and harmony between drug developers of gene therapy and regulators. There was a middle zone, I would say it's between one and three years ago, where some of the toxicity of gene therapy came out uh, into the public arena and just required a little bit of a pause. I think a lot of gene therapy trials went on clinical holds while the FDA and the industry figured things out together in terms of how to de-risk these programs. And now I would say that the, the faucet is, is open again in terms of FDA guidance and support for gene therapies. For example, for Danon disease, we just got RMAP designation, which is like the old breakthrough designation last week. And this allows us to have frequent dialogues with the FDA, including with some of their senior management and a commitment to help us develop this, this therapy for patients as efficiently as possible. So the regulatory landscape has evolved. It's wax and wane, but I think we're in a really good place at the moment. And that's one side of the coin. The other thing that always concerns me and, and others in this area is 
excess. So as you develop a novel solution that maybe affects a small number of people, the price tags may be excessively high. And is that really going to be an issue? Or do you imagine that there actually will be value in gene therapy rather than lifetime treatment of someone with a severe disease? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the gene therapies that have been commercialized have come with large price tags, but that has to be compared with the cost of not getting gene therapy. For example, in Dannon disease, the cost of a cardiac transplant is often about $1.5 million. And even then it doesn't work in 50% of cases. So that's the comparison versus a gene therapy price target. And also the socioeconomic cost of uh, a person losing life early. You know, what, what's the number on that? And if a patient can be cured with gene therapy, you know, some of these, these higher costs start making sense. So I, I think in this case, in the case of devastating genetic disorders, you know, high price tags are not just problematic for us and, and for patients, but they're also not, don't seem to be problematic for payers who have approved these price tags based on the socioeconomic goals. Mm -hmm. I guess the, maybe the last question I would ask you is, you know, the CEO of the company and looking out into the future, is there really a, is there a disease out there that you find particularly intriguing, maybe a little bit tough to tackle at this moment, but maybe something that you would like to see especially taken care of? Ultimately, we want to tackle something as complex as Parkinson's disease uh, or even Alzheimer's if there's a gene therapy approach to that. I think that's, when we're there, that means we've solved a huge portion of humanity's health problems. And I think we're decades, if not a century or two from there, in my opinion. But we'll get there because the gene therapy revolution that's going on right now has cracked open the door already. I would say that, however, even just addressing the multiple rare disease monogenic conditions that exist today would make a major dent in, in the world's health. And I think that's our immediate, medium-term and long-term aim at, at Rocket Pharma. Yeah, I absolutely love your optimism on it. And I, I love the fact that I disagree with your timeline. I think this is going <laughs> to go a lot faster because we got a lot of great people working on it, amazing companies and a lot of really great innovation. I mean, look how far we've come in 10 years, I guess. But if people wanted to learn more about, about your company, where would they look online or follow you on social media? Yeah. So, but by the way, as CEO, as you mentioned, my job is to under-promise and over-deliver. So hopefully <laughs> over-deliver deliver on that, that timeline. Uh, I yeah, appreciate I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry for kind of throwing you under the bus there a little bit, but I, 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 I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. You have to under-promise and over-deliver. I absolutely appreciate that. So where can uh, we find out more? Rocketpharma.com. There's also, you can follow us on LinkedIn as well. Excellent. So thank you very much, Dr. Gaurav Shah. And, and if, when the next big innovation happens, I really, really hope you come back and talk to us about it, whether it's how the existing therapies move forward and are changing the lives of people, or as new things show up on your radar that you want to chase, please reach out because I just love this topic and I really appreciate you being with me here today. It was great talking to you, Kevin. Really enjoyed this conversation. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. And I think we can look forward to a much more sunny future where these are the tip of the spear of these therapies really hitting home in conjunction with things like the innovations around sickle cell disease and other approaches with rare diseases of the eye that we've seen cured with right. gene therapy. 
there's many new things on the horizon that will eventually grow and expand to the more common illnesses. So keep the orphan diseases on your radar because they are a harbinger of good things to come. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.